All right, we are going to continue in Hebrews 13. This is the last chapter. We've made it, guys. We've made it this far. Um, that's, that's, uh, uh, it, it's been quite the journey. We've had um, a, a lot of stuff that, that we've um, waded through. And so here's our, our last chapter, um, uh, Hebrews 13. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Um, and uh, you can follow along in, in your Bible, or the, the text will also be um, on the screen behind me. I'm actually going to jump back just a little bit uh, to Hebrews 12, starting in verse 28, and then we'll get to 13, uh, verse 6. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you, are, uh, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free, free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Um, so a few things we can just go ahead and, and, and uh, point out about our text here. We don't have any of the like, stuff about like, Melchizedek and blood sacrifices, uh, none of that stuff, just some pretty simple or maybe not so simple um, commands here. And actually, if we really think about it, each one of these things that our writer mentions could be its own sermon, right? Uh, I mean, loving the brothers, showing hospitality. I mean, there have actually been, we've done a whole series on just hospitality before. So uh, how are we going to tie all those things together today? Uh, we might be here for a little while. Just kidding. I that. Maybe a little bit. Um, you know, one thing I like to do with biblical passages also is to kind of just point out the things that are maybe a little... Um, absurd or silly that, or, or, or may, might not make that much sense to us. Um, so let's just get this one out of the way. Uh, entertaining angels unawares. What, 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 the, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, that, that's, I think, just, let, let's be real, that's kind of an, an odd one for us. Um, and we're going to get there, uh, so you have to hang on just a little bit, but I feel like we just need to point out that that's just kind of a weird thing, Okay. Um, let's also just take a moment to highlight the fact that the writer of Hebrews went from our God is a consuming fire. He is absolutely holy to be feared, a God who burns away all wickedness because he is so pure to, here's a good idea, love your brothers and sisters, and then, you know, some other things. It's kind of a weird transition, right? I mean, ending Hebrews with unshakable kingdom and, and consuming fire is pretty powerful faith-building stuff. So why, uh, why not just leave it there? You know, what's up with these kind of, kind of random, seemingly uh, moral imperatives? Well, I want to unpack um, this morning that I think the writer um, is, tr- is, is expressing to the church then and now um, this uh, essential point of Christian doctrine and living, if we can um, put that up there about standing, where we stand. Standing in God's unshakable kingdom frees us to love rightly, leading to peace and joy. I think that's one of the, the, the writer's main points here. And then the reverse of that is also true. Standing in man's unstable kingdom binds us in disordered loves, leading to struggle and fear. I think that's the main point um, that our, our writer is getting to and what I want to highlight for us. So 
um, I want us to notice that, that the point I'm going to argue is that the text is, is emphasizing not just that we need to like, love more. It's not just about um, uh, conjuring up you know, positive vibes towards other people or something like that. Rather, we are being encouraged to be rooted in Christ and his love and grow outward from that spot. So it's less about um, quantity of love and more about the source of our love. Um, so with that, these two questions then will kind of guide um, the rest of, of our time. We can, we'll ask one, why is the kingdom of God a better foundation for love than the kingdom of man? That's an important question because our world talks about love a lot, but they mean something a little bit different by that. So we want to take a look at that. And then what does rightly ordered love begin to look like in the Christian life? Right? That's what chapter 13 is starting to get at. But we have to we have to answer that first question before we can jump to the second. So first, let's take a look at, at that, that first question. Why is the kingdom of God a better foundation for love than the kingdom of man? So on the one hand, we have what I'm going to call the, the unstable kingdom of man and then the unshakable kingdom of God. Um, about the, the unstable kingdom of man, um, Augustine of Hippo, one of the most influential thinkers in the, uh, the, the, the Christian church, um, recognized that love is at the center of, of who we as humans are. Um, what we love, what we have desires about or affections toward, it really drives everything about us. So he would, he would go so far as to say that the problem of sin and salvation um, is really the problem of disordered or ordered loves. Um, so when he means disordered loves, he, he could mean, um, and, and sometimes he does mean, just loving the wrong thing. Um, so uh, if you say, I love kicking puppies, that's just loving the wrong thing. You shouldn't love kicking puppies. Um, but you could also just have a, a, a disordered love by, by loving something disproportionately, more or less than what that thing really um, deserves. So here's, here's kind of a, a silly example um, to, to show what, what we mean by that. Um, I, I could, and I do say, uh, I love my wife. I could also say I love pizza, right? I love those two things very differently. And I think we all kind of instinctively know uh, that I love my wife um, significantly more than I love uh, pizza. Um, however, we can imagine a scenario in which a man love, loves those two things out of, of proper order. He, he loves one like he ought to love the other. So what, what would that look like? Um, uh, a, a guy cuddling with a box of pizza, watching the notebook, uh, loving the pizza like his wife. I don't know. That would be kind of weird. Um, or, I bet what happens more often, um, loving his wife like a consumable good. Uh, and it's not in that situation. It's not that one scenario is, is weird and one is wrong. They're both wrong. They're both disordered loves. In, in the first case, he would have wrongly elevated his love for pizza. In the second case, would have wrongly lessened his love f- uh, for his wife. I know that's kind of a silly example, but the point is that we all have loves that are out of whack. Um, C.S. Lewis notes in Mere Christianity, for example, that even a mother's love for her child um, or a person's love for their country can um, become grossly inordinate so that they treat um, other children or other nations unjustly. Right? So we all have disordered loves. 
And while this has been true since the fall, when Adam and Eve first elevated their love of self over their love of God, that was the first instance of disordered love. That's always been true that we've had disordered loves, but we live in a unique time of disordered love. Because not only does our culture have its particular um, uh, disordered loves and desires, things that are inordinately elevated or devalued, and and we could spend a whole long time uh, talking about what those things are, but our culture actually valorizes disordered love. So what do I I mean by that? Um, Our world relishes the fact that it has obliterated uh, any limitations or guides to loving rightly. Um, There is no order to love. Love is entirely self-defined. There's just you pursuing whatever um, you have strong affection, feeling, or attraction towards and completely affirming everyone else's pursuits. That's how, how, how we have defined kind of love, just removing all the, the, the order uh, from it. To do anything else um, is, is deemed inauthentic um, and, and, uh, or, or oppressive towards somebody else, right? If you don't uh, totally affirm whatever else someone says that they desire or have affection towards. And that, I think, is the essence of the 21st century kingdom of man, um, and it does actually sound kind of nice at first because it sounds, it sounds um, open and free and liberating, right? Like no one's telling you um, that you can't love something, right? Just love, just, just, just be open and free. But it is inherently unstable. Because what happens when I love something that you think is out of bounds? You have no transcendent standard that um, you can point to and say, look, you're feeling a strong uh, attraction to something that is just objectively not good and right. It's corrupting you and, and corroding society. Right? You can't say that because there is no standard. The standard is there is no standard. And if there's no standard or order to appeal to, then when someone crosses the line, because we all have things that we actually say, like, no, this is wrong to like really pursue or go after X, Y, Z. When that happens, there is just uh, my will now striving against your will. There's no, there's no transcendent order to tell us who's actually, whose loves are out of, out of order. There's just my will against yours. What I think is an acceptable expression of love and desire clashing with what you think is an acceptable expression of love and desire. We're now warring parties. We're enemies. Uh, and maybe you've experienced this. Uh, maybe you have been vilified for not accepting or for, for challenging what someone valued. Or maybe you've been on the other side of that, where you ended up harboring um, deep resentment and, and contempt against somebody for not accepting or for, for challenging what you um, have cherished. You've been branded as a bigot or as being woke or any other uh, derogatory label, um, or you've done the branding. This is the unstable kingdom of man. And it generates uh, struggle and fear. Struggle because anyone who cannot affirm all of me is now my enemy. There's struggle, there's hostility. And fear because I know that if I do not affirm everything, I will become the enemy. I'll hit the tripwire and get blown up. So we started with love, right, in the kingdom of man. It seemed very loving, but we didn't have the resources to maintain it. This is where the kingdom of man based on self-defined love gets you and why I think we can say standing in man's unstable kingdom binds us 
in disordered love leading to struggle and fear. And, and I think that's where many of us are actually standing, um, thinking that um, just cultivating whatever affections you want or, or encouraging others to do the same is actually going to lead to human flourishing, and it won't. So we have God's unshakable kingdom, which is our hope. Standing in God's unshakable kingdom frees us to love rightly, leading to peace and joy. Um, some idea about what rightly ordered love looks like will come uh, in chapter 13, and we will get there, I promise. Um, but the necessity of first standing under the reign of Christ, we see so clearly at the end of, of chapter 23 and in 13 verse 6. So you know, in, in uh, verse 28, it was, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And, and uh, let us uh, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So the starting point for these loves is, is having received the kingdom of God. And so then we end with verse 6, so we can ha- confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What, is man, uh, what, what can man do to me? These two ideas are, are, are around these, these imperatives, and it's so uh, important to understand that. It, this was not a, 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 a fluke or a poor transition that we've come to this part uh, in, in, in Hebrews, um, we have to, to fit these, these imperatives to love in the context of finding our security or our foundation in God and his love. So trying to love while situated in the kingdom of man, um, where, where you are the founder and perfecter of love and life, it's just like digging and digging and digging and trying and trying to create a well so that you might have a little bit of uh, something to drink and to share that with, with your companions. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 I am the fountain of living water. If you drank from me, you would be satisfied a hundred, a thousand times over with plenty to share with those who are near and with those who are far. And the whole of Hebrews has essentially been trying to make this point about Jesus, right? Our subtitle here has been, Jesus is better. Jesus is God's son, higher than the angels who entered into human suffering and death so that he could lead us out of it. He is greater than Moses, leading his people into a greater eternal promised land of rest. Uh, He is the great high priest who gives us access to God, who is himself a community of eternal never-ending love, right? He exists as, as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, constantly in a state of, 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 of love. And I could go on and on about the Trinity. I love talking about the Trinity. But, but he is love in himself, and Jesus gives us access to that. Uh, he establishes a better, firmer covenant or relationship with us because it is based not only on the unchangeable promises of God to guard us as his own, but upon his own perfect life, death, and resurrection. He redeems us with the greatest demonstration of love ever, the sacrifice of his own perfect and holy blood. Jesus is better, right? That's, like, that's my recap of, of all of Hebrews right there. Um, and so when he's the object of your faith, or when you are united with him in total trust and dependence, you are, are set upon, covered, and filled with the eternal love of God. So, so check this. When you are standing uh, with, with him, rooted um, in his kingdom, you can actually never give so much of yourself in love to others that you have nothing left. Um, definitely there will be times where your love tank is going to feel really empty. Um, I mean, anyone who's walked with God for any amount of time knows that that is the case. But 
um, although we might run dry for a moment, the well never does. And God beckons us to himself again and again to drink and be filled over and over with his immense grace. So not only if we're standing in his love can, can you never give too much of yourself, um, no one can in the end crush you, oppress you, or cast you into ultimate despair. Yes, people will try, um, and people will come really close to succeeding. We actually see this with um, some of the saints throughout Scripture. Um, king David, before he was king, uh, in 1 Samuel 21, he literally acted insane, like scratching at walls, drool going down his beard insane, um, so that a foreign king would harbor him because Saul was trying to kill him. That's pretty crazy. And you know what, what David says in the midst of that because he knew the promises and the covenant that God had made with him? We actually know exactly what he said. This is Psalm 34. We'll just hit a, 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 just a part of this. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Delivered him from all his fears. He had no fear. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That's what David says in the midst of his troubles because he knows the love of the Lord. And we, we're in Christ who overcame death. So we can say with even greater confidence than the psalmist, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear because perfect love casts out fear. What can man do to me? That's Psalm 118, which um, our our writer here in Hebrews is quoting in verse six. So this frees us to pour out love into our world in ways which, which, frankly, the world can't even understand. Godly love actually baffles uh, worldly love. It just doesn't make sense. Because um, the cross, the greatest demonstration uh, of the love of God, is actually it's just foolishness um, to the world. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1. Because Jesus, in weakness and suffering, gave of himself totally, preserving nothing of his power, or dignity, or security, sacrificing all of it. (laughs) That just doesn't make sense, according to worldly wisdom, does it? Because worldly wisdom urges us to hold on to power, and dignity, and security. And, And that actually, I think we can see here, it actually disables us from total love, when you're constantly holding on to those things. So maybe we can give up some of those things, you know, the power, the security. I mean, we can give up some of that to love others, like, right? like, like our family members or those who are kind of in our tribe, but give up all of it? On top of that, Jesus was loving his enemies, right? Sinners who were hostile and rebellious towards God. Surely loving your enemy is not to be encouraged, right? Wouldn't that build them up and give them greater strength to oppose you? Possibly, or it might disarm them. And even if it doesn't, um, we are secure in Christ. Um, Paul says it this way, uh, so great in Romans 8. Um, 
He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Right, who? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, right? There is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. In him, you are totally secure. And so this frees you, actually, to reorder your loves rightly. So this is why I think the writer of Hebrews picks up where he does here. He, 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 has, to, he has to let us know first the, the security that we have in God's unshakable kingdom before he can say, okay, now actually your loves, they're out of whack and they're not going to lead you to the, the, the kind of flourishing that you want. So be rooted in him first and now let's get to reordering our loves rightly and properly. You now have the internal spiritual resources to actually do that. So hopefully we've um, answered our first question. Um, Why is the kingdom of God a better foundation for love than the kingdom of man? Because we can say, to kind of summarize, self-defined love based on no transcendent order creates too many enemies of those who order their loves differently. Um, of those who have conflicting or contradictory um, loves and desires. Uh, While on the other hand, God-fueled loves comes from an endless source of love demonstrated in Christ's cross and allows us to continually, constantly share that love, no matter the circumstance, no matter even the, 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 the person. So now we need to look at the second question. Why or what does rightly ordered love begin to look like in the Christian life? So obviously, uh, God is primary, right? God is our, our primary love. He should have our, our ultimate affection. Uh, and Hebrews, I think, has been getting at this, this point by getting us to see his great worth and majesty. But what next? How do we love others well and, and, and rightly? How do we value the rest of God's um, good creation in a way that is going to um, uh, generate flourishing? And so the first thing that our writer mentions here is uh, in, in terms of reordering our loves and, and um, desires and our needs is uh, brother love or brotherly love, um, which is cultivating affection for the saints, for those who are in Christ. In Ephesians 2, um, Paul says that um, Jews and Gentiles were once strangers. They're hostile to each other, but they have been brought near in peace through the blood of Christ. He says to them, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So when we are saved, um, we are adopted into the family or household of God. So that as Jesus says in Mark 10, we gain new brothers and sisters and mothers. You know, that's why there is this language of brothers and sisters used um, to talk about Christians because we're in the same family. The original um, audience of this letter um, clearly understood these new relations and were treating one another with greater um, affection than probably made sense to outsiders, right? We know that because he says, let brotherly love continue. That means it's already there, but it needs to continue. Um, And this this teaching about uh, brotherly love was extremely prevalent in the early church. Um, We know because um, Jesus 
Paul, John, they all talk about it. Jesus says that outsiders will know those who follow him because of their love for one another. Um, Paul exhorts the Galatians to actually bear one another's burdens. Um, that's, that's the extent to which we love one another as, as believers. And John actually encourages us to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christ laid down his life for us. And he actually warns us that anyone who says he loves God but hates his, his, his brother is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So the writer of Hebrews acknowledges that, that, that they get this, and he simply encourages them to continue that love, to continue um, giving of themselves and to form those deep bonds of affections um, for one another. And that encouragement is so um, it's so necessary because one of the beautiful things about the church is that uh, God saves people from all different walks of life, all different races, all different um, social statuses and economic statuses, and brings them together. So there's going to be a little tension. <laughs> um, and if we think about this in terms of like the sibling uh, analogy or the, the, the sibling metaphor here, um, uh, you know, I know that I, I love my brother and my sister, right? If you, if you come at my brother and sister, I'm coming at you. Um, and yet, <clears throat> no one can get under my, my skin quite uh, as much as my brother and, and sister can. And I think, for those of you with siblings, maybe you know um, the same thing, you know, you've experienced the same thing. Um, you know, I don't know how many uh, name-calling, arm-pinching, hair-pulling, knuckle-pounding fights you've had with your siblings, but <clears throat> I'm going to keep that between me and the Lord. <clears throat> He knows I don't need to tell you. Uh, and those same kinds of quarrels are going to come up in the church as, as well. Those, the, uh, uh, and, and even this church, this specific church. So we can talk about these kinds of, of quarrels and fights in, in the church at large, but also this specific church. And we're reminded here that when we are in Christ's kingdom, those quarrels don't have to turn into division and estrangement. Because in Jesus, there is always, there is always, always more that unites us than divides us. There is always more that unites us than divides us because we are all covered by the blood of Jesus. The church should always be the safest, most secure place where we can disagree with one another. But is it? Isn't it too easy to slip into the world's way of self-defining love and making enemies of, of others, even those who are Christians? How often are we guilty of demonizing the saints? Right? I, I know, actually, a couple months ago, Kyle had shared an article with me that started off with like six or seven like buzzwords within the evangelical church that if you bring them up, they are almost certainly going to cause division. And I read it, and I was like, this is so sad because it's true. I pray that that's not true of us, that we recognize that there is more that unites us in Christ and divides us. And I'm... Um, I'm encouraged, actually, by the um, <clears throat> example, um, historically, of George Whitfield and John Wesley. And if you don't know who those two are, um, Whitfield was a Calvinist evangelist who, whose preaching actually helped spark the First Great Awakening. Um, and fun fact, scholars believe that the First Great Awakening helped unite the colonies before the War of Independence. So a little historical fact that fits with uh, this weekend. Uh, Wesley, on the other hand, was an Arminian uh, evangelist and minister who founded what is now um, Methodism. I mean, you don't need to know the particularities about Calvinism and Arminianism uh, just to know that they conflict on some pretty major points. But this is what Whit Whitfield said in a letter to um, John Wesley. So I have it here. Um, Whitfield says, My honored friend and brother, I beseech you by the mercies of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, if you would have my love confirmed toward you. 
Why should we dispute when there is no possibility of convincing? Will it not in the end destroy brotherly love and insensibly take from us that cordial union and sweetness of soul which I pray God may always subsist between us? How glad would the enemies of our Lord be to see us divided? Let's just stop there. How glad would the enemies of our Lord be to see us divided? Honored sir, let us offer salvation freely to all by the blood of Jesus and whatever light God has communicated to us, let us freely communicate to others. Man, I wish that that was our mentality as well. You also have the spirit of Christ in you to be a source of love and reconciliation within the church. So our, our love for our brothers and sisters can be ordered rightly when we are, are um, standing in the love of God. So the second thing our writer brings up is uh, stranger love. And by stranger love, I don't mean like a love that's kind of weird. Um, The the love that we show towards strangers, cultivating affections even for the least um, in in our uh, society. Um, So in Christ, we are able actually to extend our love even to the stranger, the one who is most uh, unlike us. Um, In in verse 1, the the, the Greek word that is used here is is just one word, Philadelphia, brother love. And in here, it's one word, (coughs) Philizenia, stranger love, love for the stranger, (coughs) excuse me, which um, in our translation has as showing hospitality to the stranger. Um, And like I mentioned earlier with, 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 with worldly love, sometimes that might extend past yourself to like your family or your tribe. Um. But it's, it's a lot difficult to go past that. And, and the people who are kind of, you know, in your family or in your tribe, who are your people, they're still very much like you. But to give of yourself and show affection to someone who is totally different and foreign and maybe even an enemy, again, it doesn't make sense um, in, in worldly definitions of love. Why would we make ourselves that vulnerable? Why, why would we say, hey, I really disagree with you and you've been even hostile to me but I'm going to care about and for you. Why Why would we? How can we? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. And we are secure in his love, and so that enables us to love those who are strangers. <clears throat> all right, entertaining angels. We got there. Um, what's that all about? Um, uh, so this entertaining angels bit. So first, that could be um, when we think entertaining angels, we could be talking about angels, right? The spiritual uh, beings that God sometimes sends. Um, we see like an example of this in Genesis 18 with Abraham. Um, there's some people who he shows hospitality towards, and it turns out that they are like actually angels. One of them is even called the Lord, Yahweh. Um, it could be that's, what, that's what's happening here. Um, another a line of interpretation argues that the world, word angel in Greek just means like simply messenger, and it it does. Um, and so one commentator says that by loving a stranger you, you, and you're going to, to bless them, you actually might be loving someone who God has sent as his messenger to actually speak a word of encouragement or blessing in your life. Either case, I think actually the same point, whether you're like legitimately you know, giving your, your Big Mac to an angel uh, as you be hospitable, uh, it doesn't actually matter because I think the same point is there. Um, so we actually know from, from ancient sources that um, some people came around Christians as spies or informants um, for the Roman authorities, uh, and others were simply mooching off of them because they were just so, um, so overflowing with, with, with gifts and with love. 
Um, and then we have other sources that show us that, that uh, Christians actually start to be really wary, really skeptical of showing hospitality. So I think our writer here is encouraging us not to be so cynical about displaying stranger love, love to the stranger. Um, you know, you might get taken advantage of. Um, if you think that's an issue, go read First Peter 2, where uh, Peter tells uh, slaves to even uh, be loving towards their unjust masters. But our, I think our writer is saying, better to assume that God has specifically sent that person for you to minister to, and maybe they might minister back. Um, I think that that's really hard. Maybe I'm the only cynical or skeptical one here, um, but I imagine there's probably others who you hear that, and it just goes against like what your personality even is, right? You want to be like, well, they're probably going to try to take advantage of me. They're just mooching. Um, but I think what we're being encouraged here is, is to say that when we are standing firmly rooted in the kingdom of God, drinking again and again from the wells of his love, we are able to pour out affection abundantly even to those who might spurn us and act deceitfully or viciously um, towards us which is a really big claim. And maybe God is just calling us to test him in this and see if uh, he really will uh, give us the resources to show that kind of love. Um, I don't, we don't really have time to dig further uh, into the author then fleshes out what that stranger love um, looks like by bringing up the prisoners and the mistreated. Uh, we could spend a whole long time uh, looking at how uh, the Roman justice system worked and prison conditions and all that kind of stuff and draw a lot of conclusions from that. But uh, suffice it to say, I think we're just being encouraged to look after the ones who are the most reviled and neglected in society, maybe even those who appear to deserve the state that they're in. And in Jesus, um, we, we can do that. Je- Jesus actually says it this way in Matthew 25, um, 41 through 46, about who we should love. He says, then... Uh, he will say to those on his left, he's talking about um, God, uh, he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then continue um, on to the next verse. Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So maybe it's not just that we should assume that we're entertaining an angel. Maybe it's we should assume we're entertaining Jesus. Just just let you sit with that one for a little bit. Standing in God's kingdom filled with his love, not only does it um, uh, reorder our, our love for people, for our brothers and, and sisters and for strangers, but also for our, our desires and needs for, for, for things even. Um, so um, our author um, talks about uh, marriage and sex. Um, marriage is uh, the, the place where we cherish the proper context for sex. So biblical teaching affirms that sex was created for and is expressed most joyously within the covenant of marriage. And for that reason, uh, marriage ought to be held in honor, as verse 4 says, or uh, more literally, cherished, uh, valued as of great worth. Marriage is precious because within it, this gift from God uh, called sex exists. 
And moreover, the marriage union most closely resembles the love of Christ for his church. That's in Ephesians 5, which is not to downplay singleness, which Scripture also really highly regards. Just go read 1 Corinthians 7. But again, this is not a sermon on just this one thing, but it could be. Um, so for that reason, sex, um, or the marriage bed, as, um, as our writer here calls it, ought to remain undefiled. That same word, undefiled, is used to describe Jesus um, in Hebrews 7.26. So we're just echoing what we see of Jesus in our relationship with our spouse. But what we see in reality is that people misorder their loves. They actually elevate sex and lessen <coughs> marriage, and so we get what the, the writer here calls out, sexual immorality, which is any perversion of sex taken outside of the covenant of marriage, <coughs> me, and adultery, which is unfaithfulness within marriage. And our writer's pretty clear, God will judge those who <coughs> have those kinds of disordered loves. <coughs> Excuse me. And again, we could spend a lot of time here. And I think it would be really easy, first of all, to talk about the ways in which our culture kind of devalues um, marriage, <coughs> but... Maybe we need to look at our own practices first. Um, I think actually many of us go the other way. We actually over-elevate marriage and, and kind of um, idealize it or actually idolize it. Um, I mean, I'll be the first to admit at, uh, at one point I have said something like uh, when I was single, um, you know, I'll really be able to, to participate in the church when I'm married. Um, maybe other people, other single people have thought something like that. Um, or some people uh, will sometimes think, you know, God, I'm ready for you to come back, but first, can I just get married and have sex? <coughs> Won't say who I know who has said that, but there are some people who you know who you are. <coughs> um, <coughs> I imagine um, it's also true, however, um, that our collective internet browser history would reveal um, that actually we do disvalue marriage uh, and, uh, and sex which is to our loss. Um, time doesn't you know, permit us to dig into the many ways I think that we, we do disvalue uh, marriage, um, maybe by uh, the comments in front of others that tear down our spouse, or just ignoring your spouse, or the small or large actions that put our own needs first and diminish our partner's needs. We can go on and on about the ways in which we um, truly don't cherish our, our marriages. The point here, however, is that despite all those shortcomings, when we stand in the kingdom of an unstained, undefiled Christ, we can learn to properly cultivate an unstained, undefiled marriage and marriage bed, and that should be an encouragement. Um, the last thing that our writer uh, mentions here is to keep your life free from love of money. <clears throat> so maybe we need to downgrade our devotion to stuff. We can be brief here. Worldly, self-defined love strives after material goods, especially money, which we believe uh, gets us power, which is why we overly elevate its value. And we think that it, it, gives us, it gives us power, so we're going to pursue it over and over, but it actually binds you in the endless cycle of consumption. You start to feel insecure um, and, and anxious and, and powerless unless you acquire more and more. So you have overvalued things and so become captive to them. But godly, Christ-rooted love, our author says, frees you from the love of money. Literally, it says, not money love, it's one word, not money love is your character. It's the way in which you live your life. How? 
because you know that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as Jesus instructs, all these things will be added to you. I think too many of us are, uh, we're held captive. We're bound um, in chains by our disordered loves. Um, I was actually, I was talking with the elders um, back here before uh, service, and I, I told them, I was like, you know, I could, I could get really specific. I could get really specific about the things uh, that, that we tend to love um, inordinately, um, whether that's our relationships um, within the church or towards those outside, um, whether it's about money or our marriages. Like, I could have gotten even more specific than I did. <clears throat> um, my fear in doing that, actually, is that I would leave something out and so for some of you, I wouldn't name exactly the way uh, in which you, your loves are dismordered, and you'd be like, okay, good, I'm fine. And my, f- my, my, my fear is that, that that would have happened. So, But my, my, my prayer is instead, the Holy Spirit throughout all of this has been, has been really calling you out and showing you the ways in which your loves are out of proportion and how they're not actually going to lead to, to, to flourishing. If you just pursue just the things that you love, um, or if you're encouraging others, just, just you know, go after what, what, what you want, man, it's not going to work. And you're actually going to be in change. You're actually going to be held in, in bondage. You're going to be, uh, it could turn, even turn you into a really unloving person because everyone else who, who, who sees things differently is your enemy. So I'm praying that, that the Holy Spirit is, is really speaking to you and really calling out, hey, what are the things in your life that really don't fit, fit in line with God's good and loving word that he reveals to us in Scripture? You know, it, it could be that um, you are, are unable to love your brothers and sisters, um, even, even here, you know, those in the church, um, because you can't fathom how they might value things differently than you. Um, I think some of us, we, could, we can't even think about how we might bear another's burdens because we're actually still holding on to our own and we haven't recognized that God is taking those and uh, has taken those on the cross. Um, I think some are, are really, uh, I know some of us are really jaded um, towards others, uh, especially those who are very different um, than us, and and man, you just you need to know the love of, that God has for you, and you need to know how actually far from Him you were before He saved you, so that you can then turn around and have those same the same kind of vision that God looks at you that you can turn and then see others in the same way. You know, my whole point is that there's hope. You know, there's, there's hope because you have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that you can enter in because Jesus has washed you clean by his perfect blood and his, and his life is holy and perfect and indestructible. The Lord himself is your helper. You need not fear. What can any person do to you? You are able to have fellowship with the God who is love and to drink deeply from his well and that reorients all of your other affections. And so you can, in, in gratitude for what he has done and in reverence and awe of his beauty and perfection and majesty, offer your acceptable worship before him, which is a life that loves him first and all of creation after that, according to his good and perfect word. Um, let's pray. Um, Lord, I thank you. Um, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace, which you demonstrated on the cross it really is incredible that we, 
your word says we're, we were hostile to you. We were enemies. We were rebellious. And still you came and loved us and have drawn us into uh, uh, your, your own life, which is full of love. And I ask that for those of us who, who maybe even feel like, like we are, are totally unloved, that we cannot be loved, that we are actually so loved by you. I pray that there would be freedom for those, for those who, who have, have, have even felt loveless. I pray that there would always also be freedom for those who ha- are, are pursuing things that can never ultimately satisfy them. They're elevating things and worshiping things that are, are, are going to let them down every time. God, help us to understand that you are truly our firm foundation as we were seeing earlier. You are in, you, you, you have and build an unshakable kingdom and you invite us to live in that kingdom. So as we learn what it means to, to live in that kingdom, would you reorient our loves, reorient the way that, that we um, value and we treat others in the church and outside the church, uh, how we value our marriages and, and our stuff and, 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 and help us just to have the, 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 the proper vision um, to, to see those things, what they actually are under you. Nothing can surpass your great worth, your great love. And so I ask that, that we would just get that, that we would so, so, be, be so full of your love that we would understand what it means to love um, in our everyday life. And God, I know that you are faithful to do that. You are faithful to to transform us, to give us your grace and to reorient our lives. And so I pray that that this community, um, others would look at and say, man, this is just a a community filled with love. And they they lift one another up. They encourage one another. They don't hold too tightly to things. They're not scrooges. They're not grumpy. They, They are just joyous. They're at peace. People would see that. And, and want that. And then we could turn and say, it's just because we have Christ. God, let that be the, this kind of community. So go with us as, as, as we walk from here, being a people full of your love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.